This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanik. Welcome back. Read something quite interesting the other day, and it's this. Perception is a mirror, not a fact. And what I look on is my state of mind reflected outward. This was a quote from a book channeled by a woman named Helen Shuckman. And the book is A Course in Miracles. I saw this quoted in an article that I was reading, and I thought it was spot on. Perception is a mirror, not a fact. And what I look on is my state of mind reflected outward. A Course in Miracles is a book, by the way, for those who don't know, and I didn't either prior to this article, but it's a book that was channeled by a woman named Helen Chuckman. She didn't write the book. She claims to have channeled the book. And the channeling was done this way. She heard a voice in her head that said it was the historical Jesus. And this voice told her all the things that she wrote down and then compiled into the book, A Course of Miracles. It's an interesting story. Helen Shuckman was raised as an ethnic Jew. Both of her parents were half Jewish, but they weren't practicing. They were not practicing Jews. They were kind of ecumenical in a sense. They sort of dabbled in theosophy, which is kind of a New England, you know, all religions are the same. They lead to one big truth kind of school of thought. They also dabbled in Christian science. But by the time Helen Shuckman was an adult, at the time of her channeling, she thought of herself as an atheist. And so she was surprised when a voice inside of her head said, I'm the historical Jesus. And then this voice said, and I'm going to give you a course in miracles. Take notes. Not an experience most of us have ever had. I mean, it's an unusual experience. It was catalyzed by an argument she had with her boss, not really her boss, but a colleague, a guy named William Thetford. William Thetford had hired her in the psychology department at Columbia University to be an assistant professor and also to be his research assistant. So while he wasn't nominally her superior, he was kind of her senior, you know, her mentor, her, I don't know how you would describe that relationship. But anyways, over time, Thetford and Shuckman realized that they were sort of at odds with each other. They didn't get along. They were competitive with each other. They would criticize each other. And most of the time they were polite enough, but every now and then this acrimony would come to the surface and they'd squabble and quarrel. And well, one day Thetford in exasperation said to Shuckman, look, there's got to be a better way that we can work together. We've got to be able to change how we interact. So we're not so competitive and always so mutually critical. And he wrote that he was expecting Shuckman to parry with one of her typically condescending comments, but this time she didn't. This time, her silence seemed to convey her agreement that she thought there was a better way too, that she too had grown tired of the acrimony between them. And so they sort of agreed together that they they would find a better way. And that's when these channelings started. That's when the voice in Chuckman's head started, because as she began to contemplate how they could interact in a more constructive way, she began having these wild dreams at night. And when she was walking around awake, she would hear this voice. And in both her dreams and when she was walking around awake, the voice said it was Jesus Christ and he was going to give her a course in miracles. And initially, when she started hearing this voice, she thought she might be going crazy and she was reluctant to tell Thetford. 
I mean, they were psychologists after all, and she worried that he might think she's, you know, had lost it. And so she didn't say anything for a while. And then she finally did. And to her surprise, he was very supportive. And he assured her, which made her relax. And then once she relaxed, then the channeling came more easily. And Thetford even volunteered to be her scribe. So when she was awake and hearing the voice, Thetford would keep notes. She also kept a tape recorder with her, and he would transcribe the notes that she dictated into this tape recorder. And then he, Thetford, compiled it into a book. Initially, they disseminated this book just through photocopied copies of it, kind of like a, you know, kind of like a homemade book, and they would pass it around, and that's how people learned about it. But over time, there were a couple other editors that got involved, and they compiled it into a proper book, and they published it as a paperback and a hard hardback book. And to date, they've sold over 2 million copies. And the book, A Course in Miracles, is primarily about how to change your thinking. And not just how to change your thinking, but how to improve your thinking. And not just how to improve your thinking, but how to get out of the egoic mind and the constructed mind that we've constructed for ourselves and begin to hear God's thinking. And begin, because you've replaced your own thinking, to begin to understand God's will for you. And that's the basic premise. There are a lot of premises, but that's the most basic one. That if you can somehow turn off the thinking that you've constructed for yourself, your egoic thinking, in the words of Eckhart Tolle, you can then replace that with God's thinking for you. And if you listen to your own thinking exclusively, you will never be happy ever. But if you can replace your own thinking with the thinking of the divine, with the thinking of your creator, that will lead to miracles. How interesting. Yet also how very common things that, in one way or another, lots of people have said over the years. In 1667, so 300 years before Shuckman, a guy named John Milton wrote a long poem called Paradise Lost. And in Paradise Lost, there's a line that says, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Interestingly enough, this line is spoken by Satan in the poem, Paradise Lost. Satan is the one who says, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. So what inference do we draw from that about Satan? Well, you know, Satan's trying to get in your head and turn the heaven of your life into hell. And another inference is all he's got to do is get in there because the mind is its own place. We know this. We all know this at one level. We all know you got to control your mind, you know, and if you don't have a right attitude, you're going to, you know, end up unhappy. And if you do the wrong things, it's going to get inside your head and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we know all this at one level. It's so basic and fundamental and obvious. Yet at another level, learning to control one's mind, realizing that all that you perceive is driven by your mind. And if you could but control that, you control everything. Wow, that pursuit just defies us, eludes our grasp, doesn't it? Because the thoughts clamoring in our head seem so real. Our forecasts of the future seem so accurate. Our interpretations of the past seem so rigorous. Our impressions about a certain person or ourselves or our situations seem so divinely directed. And it's so easy to get stirred up by our thoughts. And the other thing that's weird is they just happen. Our mind is just bombarding us, cascading thoughts day and night, and just constantly. 
And we think, well, that must be an accurate perception, a perception of the world, our perception of the world. But as Helen Schuckman was told as she was channeling Jesus, perception, which includes all this, all these thoughts, this bombardment of thought, perception is a mirror, not a fact. And what I look on is my state of mind reflected outward. So all of our forecasts of the future, all of our worries, all of our interpretation of past slights, or even our memory of past facts, all of our judgments about ourselves and others, our situations, our jobs, our families, our spouses, all these perceptions are merely mirrors. And all we're really noticing is the mind reflected outward. Well, that's weird because we think what we're perceiving is what is, what is out there, what, you know, what is objective truth, but that's not what it is, according to Helen Schuckman. And that's why it makes it so difficult to control our minds, even though everyone who's ever lived knows you got to control your mind, that your attitude and your mental state completely affects your life. Everyone knows the mind is its own place, as Milton described it. Everyone knows that the mind can turn heaven into hell and vice versa. Yet as we're showered by our mind, we confuse that with objective, factual perception of what is. And so it's a lot harder to do. It's a lot harder to get out of the mind, to get out of your own way. And so the mind defies us and our desire to escape from it. For us, the LDS, for us, the good Christians, for us, religious people of any kind, one of the questions that is incessantly lodged in what we think is our perception of the world is the question, are you doing enough? Have you done enough so that when you die and you go up to meet your maker, he doesn't vomit in your presence? That thought is with us always. And sadly, for the most earnest among us, it pervades everything that we think and do and perceive. Have you done enough? Did you do all the ceremonies, the ordinances? Did you do all the service? Did you keep all the commandments? If you didn't, did you repent enough? Did you... Were you humble enough? Were you giving enough? Were you meek enough? Were you, were you, were you, were you? And we perceive the world and ourselves because of this omnipresent thought as fundamentally deficient, as fundamentally lacking. And we're constantly seeking to fill that void, that lack. We're constantly praying and trying and striving to fill up this bottomless pit. And this fundamental thought kind of colors everything that we do. Colors all the questions that we ask. Colors our prayers. Colors our activities. Colors how we plan, how we set priorities. I remember thinking that I had perceived some great lack in myself, some great deficiency, inexplicable. I couldn't really tell you exactly what it was that I was lacking or exactly why I was deficient, but I was feeling, feeling anxiety about something, about my state of affairs, about my... It was something. I, I don't even know what the specifics were, but I was in the temple full of anguish, mental anguish, perceiving anguish produced by my mind reflected outward. My egoic mind that had a life of its own, feeling inadequate judged by myself, by the way, though I didn't know it was by myself at the time. And I'm sitting in the temple in the celestial room, and the prayer I kept repeating over and over and over is just tell me what I need to do to fill this void in me so I can feel better, feel like I'm on the right track. What do I need to do? I'll do anything. That's so earnest. I was like, oh, I'll do, 
anything. I'll make any sacrifice. Give everything away. I'll sell the house. You know, whatever, anything. I was open, willing. And the answer that I received, and it was different than what my mind was telling me. But the answer, the impression, the spiritual impression, I think it was a spiritual impression, was you have done enough. You don't need to do anymore. It is enough. It's not like I'm Mother Teresa. I mean, I don't even think of myself as someone who has done much. I don't think of myself as being particularly charitable or any sort of standout when it comes to spiritual measurement of great spiritual beings. I mean, I don't think of myself as being a, I mean, I'm very average, mediocre, a median kind of guy. But I couldn't shake this impression and this answer. You've done enough. You don't need to do anything else. You've done, it's plenty. It's adequate. But it was this phrase, you've done enough. You don't need to do anything else. And I thought that this answer, this spiritual impression was, I thought that was the projection of my mind. I thought that was not the truth. I sort of shook it out of my head and tried to, you know, I thought, oh, this can't be right. This is just, you know, my fantasy. Because you, you got to earn your way into heaven. You got to do all you can do before grace kicks in. We all know that. And if you're troubled by something, you got to, you know, work hard and effort and sacrifice and all that sort of stuff. And I tried to shake off this answer, which I deemed as a non-answer, but the answer just never went away. I just kept thinking about it, kept coming back to it over the months, over the years. And over time, I've come to realize that in spite of what our egoic mind is telling us, we are enough. We are beings of light. In spite of what our mind tries to convince us, we are complete, totally acceptable to God, loved in our current state. Nothing else needs to happen. We don't need to do anything at all except realize all the lies we've been telling ourselves about ourselves. The only thing we have to do is realize that our perceptions are a mirror of the outward projection of our mind, but that we can change those. We can shake off those delusions and that everything we've been taught in life is to that end, the end in which we understand the self-constructed images we have of ourselves as being just that, constructed by us, fantasies, delusions. And what a point of comparison and contrast that type of awakening gives us. Well, for me, this was revolutionary. This changed my life in so many ways, but in one particular way. The outcomes of anything just didn't matter. The outcomes of anything happening on this earth just didn't matter. They couldn't affect me. They couldn't change what I was as a son of God, as a being of light. Because I knew God loved me as I was. And I knew since God loved me, he'd take care of me. And so the outcomes and all of my mental worries and projections of outcomes of whatever they were, be they job interviews or business deals or family relationships or church, whatever, you know, the outcomes just didn't matter. It didn't affect this core being. So if you're not worried about the outcome, an odd thing really happens. You get really relaxed and you just don't seem to worry about failure. And then oddly, you don't fail as much. It's the weirdest thing in life. And one of the greatest blessings of being told you're not your mind and you don't need to do anything. You're not deficient. So if you're not deficient, you're not doing anything to prove yourself. You're not doing anything to earn something from God in the next life or this life. Or You're doing things 
because you're here. You're doing things because why not? For me, I became more careful and less careful. I became less worried about failure, yet more successful in some ways. Successful is kind of the wrong word. But since I worried less about failure, I, I didn't seem to fail at stuff as much. And if I did, I didn't notice, and it was all the same anyways. And as that sort of thinking slowly crept into my mind, and then my mind projected that outward, my perceptions of the world also changed. My perceptions of other people changed, changed for the better. It enabled me to forgive because I realized people that were doing hurtful things to me or to others or had done bad things to me in the past were operating under their own set of delusions. They were enshrouded in their own ego and their own delusions. And, you know, once those delusions are removed from their eyes, once that cloak is taken off of their minds, they'll have the same realization that God is providing for all of his children, I believe. And suddenly there's a new perspective. And it's a beautiful thing. It also makes you think Jesus was right when he said you can't serve two masters. Because you're going to love the one and you're going to hate the other. Which, of course, on one level makes no sense. Because, you know, if you've worked at any company or any corporation, you know that there's a few bosses. And you can serve them all. And there, you know, there are various power centers in life. And you can serve various conflicting power centers. And so that's not really what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about you cannot serve your delusions. The bombardment of your uninformed mind and its horrible perceptions inflicted on you. You can't serve that and the truth of yourself, the truth of God, your existence as a being of light. You can't serve those two things simultaneously because you're going to love the one and you're going to hate the other. Well, seen from that, seen from that perspective, yeah, that is true. You can't. You can't, ha- you can't think like God, think his thoughts, and think your own thoughts. You just, you can't. Because you're going to love the one and you're going to hate the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And, you know, we always interpret mammon to mean money, wealth, you know, Caesar, the mighty dollar. And, you know, I guess it sort of means that. But for my money, pun intended, it means you can't serve your existence as a being created by God and follow the thoughts that God would have you think about yourself and your world and your experience. And at the same time, do all the things your ego is telling you about all the conditioning and all the things that you must and must do both religiously and secularly and in your family and in your profession. You can't do that at the same time. And if you choose God, if you realize you're not deficient, well, then the outcomes don't affect anything. And oddly, everything works out. It's, it's the strangest, most inexplicable paradox. And even if it seems like it doesn't work out, you know eventually it's going to work out. It's nice to know that things are going to work out. Well, as you start to look at the world through this lens, all the things that we do, all of our rituals and our ordinances take on a different meaning. They're leading us. They're teaching us. They're trying to inform us, awaken us. And you realize it's the awakening and the understanding that's important. That's what you need to enter the kingdom of God because, I think, because heaven and hell are right here inside your head. And you enter the celestial kingdom when you realize that you're there. This is heretical. This is deep heresy, isn't it? Or is it? Because what is the celestial kingdom? Is it not a place where everybody's happy and full of joy? Is that what we're not constantly pursuing all the time? 
Is that what our mind is constantly telling us we're not worthy of because we haven't done X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G? And what a relief it is when God enables you to turn your mind off and plug into his. That's a relief. So what's your mind telling you about yourself? What's your mind telling you that you lack? What failures are you worried about? Why do you feel tense as you begin something? You go in for an interview, show up on the job. Why are you tense when you come home and worry about the outcome, the results, the decisions of others? Wouldn't it be wonderful to set all that aside and turn to God? The common answer I often hear at this juncture is, well, yeah, that sounds great, but that's not the reality. That's not what's going on, in fact. But that's not the reality. Here's the reality. What's going on, in fact, is merely what you're perceiving. And what you're perceiving is merely the outward projection of your own mind. And we know this because we see it in every sphere. When we go to church on Sunday, we see people who understand this and we see people who don't. The people who understand it are loving and kind and accepting. And the people who don't are dogmatic and rigid and critical and judgmental. The people who understand it are humble and kind and receptive. And the people who don't march around with a self-congratulatory look of bravado on their face a self-righteousness that belies commitment to God. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what delusions everyone else is laboring under because those don't affect your happiness and your joy and your peace. The only thing that affects your happiness, your joy and your peace are your own delusions. So what are they? And how can you get out from underneath them? Well, of course, you can't on your own. And that's the beauty of life. We have to turn to God. We have to let go of the personality, the ego, the mental constructs we've made for ourselves and turn to our God and believe what he's telling us. You have done enough. That was a hard thing for me to believe. But once I did, you know, it was a lot better. At this juncture, other people will say, well, that's a cop out. You're lazy. You're shirking your responsibility. You're just sticking your head in the sand like an ostrich. And to that, I say, maybe I am. Think that about me if it makes you feel better. But of course, those evaluations by others of me are, of course, their projections. Something, again, we all know viscerally. We all get it. We all know that what people think and what people say about us is about them. We know that. So choose ye this day who you will serve. God or mammon, your ego, which constrains you, or God, who loves you and created you. For me... I'm a lot happier choosing God, looking for his purposes, trying to do what I was created to do, being willing to receive what God wants to give. It's a funny thing, receiving. It's not as obviously simple as it sounds. It sounds so simple, oh, just receive. But to receive, you know, receiving sometimes can feel like a big non sequitur. Non sequitur, if you remember, is something that doesn't follow from the premises. So if the premises are one plus one equals, if that's the premises, or if that's the premise, a non sequitur would be the declaration of independence. Because one plus one equals a number, and the right number is two in this case. So if someone says, what's one plus one, and you answer the declaration of independence, they'll look at you like you're a kook. And your answer, of course, is a non sequitur. It does not follow from the premise. 
illogical makes no sense. And receiving sometimes feels like one great big non sequitur to us because we're looking to earn everything, prove ourselves, pass the test. But when you realize you're an heir of the Almighty, a being full of light, receiving makes perfect sense. The same way your child readily and easily receives the gifts that you give your child. I never had a problem accepting charity from my own father or my own mother or from my grandfather because, you know, they, they were my parents and they loved me and that was natural and I knew that they were here to take care of me. I mean, right? But it does feel strange if you're operating under the assumptions that you must prove yourself to God and pass some test for, for you to then receive without condition. But that's the great blessing of changing your mind, of changing what your mind projects outward, because that changes your whole perception of life, of your experience here, of what we do at church, of what we do at school and work and at home. And then you realize, well, yeah, of course people have to be baptized, because you know baptism means a death of some sort, in this case the ego, and a resurrection of another, in this case you. And the ceremony is so beautiful and so symbolic and so meaningful. And of course, you got to be baptized. Of course, you got to, this ego thing, this outward projection you've been perceiving in all of its lunacy your entire life. Of course, you got to get rid of that. Ah, then it makes sense. And then phrases in the Beatitudes like take no thought for the morrow and consider the lilies of the field, all they all start to make sense. And then judge not, oh, suddenly judge not, lest ye be judged. That starts to make sense being meek and being charitable and it all starts to make sense and when things start to make sense when things start to appear in your mind a little closer to the reality then your perceptions change you perceive all that's good and wonderful it's not easy doing this it's a process it's a continuum no one is fully awake all the time we're always working at it But my experience, my study, the messages I've received from beyond seem to imply that becoming is not really becoming, but becoming is letting go of all the delusions I've constructed for myself. And what's left is what I really am and what you really are, what we all are, beings of light created by our maker who loves us. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.